Hey there, my name is Kim, and this is my podcast, Power Up Your Performance. I believe that we have the power to rewrite our stories, change the trajectory of our lives, pour love into the world, conquer monumental challenges, and that movement can be a catalyst for change. Let's grow together. Welcome to Power Up Your Performance. Hey, hey, welcome to the show. My name is Kim Peek, and I'm so excited that you're here with me today. We're in the week leading up to New Year's, and that means that you're about to be bombarded with ads and messages from people and companies who want to capitalize on this desire that we all have to do more and be better in the new year, which is why I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest, who is going to set us all straight on what to look for as you evaluate all of these messages and offers so you can decide if the claims are really real. And while we're on that topic, I do want to remind you that there is no pressure to change anything about yourself in the new year. You are perfect exactly the way you are. But if there are some things that you want to change, you're going to enjoy what Dr. Davis has to say. First, I want to tell you about a new direction I'm going to be taking with my content in the new year. When I created that new open, the music that you hear at the beginning of the show for this season, I focused on growing together. I really want this next year to be about growth and living a life that you love. And as you can probably tell, I've begun shifting away from talking about running all the time. And I've started focusing more on personal development and mindset. Now, I am still running. I took a break from it. I had a lot of medical issues over the last couple of months. And so I'm getting back into it. But being a running coach, I don't think is the best use of my talents. And so I'm starting to shift this. I have always been very into fitness and wellness topics. And so my focus will remain there. But some of you probably also know that I started a new company at the beginning of 2021 called Iris Digital Media Group. It's a content marketing agency that I started with my daughter, Abby. And I'm trying to work to make these two businesses more aligned with each other because honestly, it hurts my brain to constantly be jumping back and forth from wellness to business and back and forth, trying to juggle everything. And I really do believe that they're very, very related because wellness, physical and mental health mindset, that is the foundation of any success that you're going to have in life. Now, I've always had a passion also, though, for the business side of things. And as I've thought about how I could be of most service to the world in 2022, I really want to help more people create their dream lives. And I know for a lot of people, that means making some big changes, changing their job, starting a business, finding a side hustle, making their side hustle a profitable thing so that maybe they can think about quitting their job or using it to buy those extras that we all want in life. So that is where I am headed in the new year. Now, it's not going to be all business all the time, but you will get a little bit of business topics woven in because 
I think a lot of you out there really do have some bigger hopes and dreams. And a lot of that revolves around the freedom of time and some financial freedom. And so we're going to talk a little bit about more of those topics in the coming months. I just feel like there's too many people out there running around wishing they could quit their job, wishing they could find a side hustle, who want more fulfillment, and who just want to go to bed at night with a full heart knowing that they made an impact on the world. And that's who we work with at our company, Iris Digital Media Group. We try to give people who want to make an impact a means of using their voice to change the world, to help elevate those voices and help you make a difference. And I really want to help people find the courage and confidence to make their dreams come true. I know that probably sounds like a huge cliche from a fairy tale, but I really believe it's possible for you to create the life that you desire. I'm working on a new program to help you create your dream life, but if you're already working on the business side and either you're in the early stages and you have a business or you have a new business, a business that's been around for a while that you just really want to elevate and have some massive growth for in the coming year, you'll want to be part of our Vision to Visibility Mastermind. We will keep you up to date on all the social media changes and we're going to hold you accountable and help you do those Facebook lives, do those Instagram lives, post those videos, make those reels, and keep your content going with focused messaging. So that's what that's all about. You can check it out at irisdigitalmediagroup.com slash vision. Now, let's talk about today's guest. The world would have you believe that losing weight is easy, but the truth is, in many cases, you're being fed a generous helping of falsehoods and misguided dieting advice. The media, celebrities, weight loss gurus, and the internet bombard society with recommendations about how to shed unwanted pounds, how to count calories. They tell you to cut carbs, to exercise more, to skip meals, drink more water, or pop a pill. Yet as more people try diligently to follow this advice, waistlines continue to expand. So we know that we are being fed a pile of lies. Robert J. Davis, PhD, also known as the Healthy Skeptic, is an award-winning health journalist whose work has appeared on Time, CNN, PBS, WebMD, and in the Wall Street Journal. The author of three books on health, he hosts the Healthy Skeptic video series, which dissects the science behind popular health claims. Dr. Davis holds an undergraduate degree from Princeton, a master's degree in public health from Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health, and a PhD in health policy from Brandeis University, where he was a Pew Foundation fellow. I think with all those credentials, it is safe to say that Dr. Robert J. Davis knows his stuff. I love my conversation with him, and I hope you do too. Welcome to the show, Robert. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you, Kim. It's great to be with you. We have a lot to talk about because you have a new book out that is called How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works, Supersized Lies. Yes, that's the title. Supersized Lies. So I want to start getting into some of these lies. Why are we fed so much misinformation about weight loss? 
Kim, I think one of the simplest reasons is money. By the latest estimates, the weight loss industry in the U.S. is estimated to be worth more than $60 billion annually. And it's even more now. That's from several years ago. So it's likely now over 70. And so there are a number of players in this industry that stand to benefit from the spread of this information, whether it's people pushing specific diets saying this is the best and only way to lose weight, whether it's companies that are promoting supposedly weight-friendly foods that are actually just the opposite in many cases, whether it's gyms, which are great places to go to, but gyms that say join now and lose 30 pounds in 30 days, whether it's supplement makers who tell us to take pop a pill and, and lose weight. The list goes on, but the point is there are a number of sellers of various goods and services that stand to benefit from the spread of this misinformation. And what makes it even more uh, frustrating is that what they're promoting doesn't work. So we keep coming back for more and they make even more money and they have an incentive to keep selling us the same things because we keep coming back for more and getting the same failed results. So that's certainly one big reason, I think. Another is, and I talk about this in the book, biases. We all have them, whether we're lay people or health professionals. But I talk about different biases that help perpetuate a lot of these myths. And just to give you a couple of examples, one is uh, we all are aware of this, the bandwagon effect. So if everyone around us seems to believe that the keto diet or a detox diet or a fasting diet, fill in the blank, whatever it may be, is the best way to lose weight, then we're more likely to jump on board and to follow the herd. To, to engage in this kind of groupthink. And this goes not only for, again, us as consumers, but it goes, it applies to health professionals as well. Related to that is something that's sometimes called the allegiance bias. I like to say when it comes to dieting, there are many, it's treated as a religion by many people, and there are many different denominations within this religion. Like I said, there's a keto denomination, there's a vegan denomination, there's the paleo denomination. Take your pick. But people often have strong attachments to these various denominations. And no matter what kind of evidence is presented to the contrary, they stick to these ideas that this is the best way, this is the only way to eat. And this is reinforced through social media because people go into echo chambers and get these ideas reinforced by like-minded people. So I think these kinds of biases also contribute to uh, what I consider to be many misconceptions about weight and health. Yeah, I think that's an important thing too. If a group that you're part of, you're a CrossFitter, so maybe you might decide that keto or paleo is the way to go because a lot of CrossFitters, and so your community that you're surrounded with believes in something, you're going to have a harder time using your own common sense or judgment to go, is this really a valid way for me to eat? Absolutely. That's exactly right. And, and we see more and more of that happening. And again, my role here is not to tell people what they should or shouldn't follow. I'm not here to tell you you should or shouldn't follow a diet. As a health journalist who looks at the evidence using my background in public health and epidemiology, my goal is to just lay out the information as thoroughly and honestly as I can to help people make better decisions for themselves, to think independently, to think critically about the information they're getting so they can perhaps try to withstand this kind of peer pressure, this kind of bandwagon effect that often occurs. So what are some of the biggest weight loss myths that we encounter? Oh, there are a number of them. One certainly is the idea that it boils simply down to calories in, calories out. I like to, sometimes it's called eat less, move more, E-L-M-M. -M. And I like to say for many people, Elm Street is a dead end. 
because if that's simply the way that uh, people view weight loss, and unfortunately it is the way it's often presented to us, Mm -hmm. then we find that this leads to failure. And the reason is that it's grossly oversimplified. Weight loss involves far more, involves biology, involves psychology, it involves environment, it involves genetics, it involves a number of complex factors, it involves how our bodies respond to the calories we're eating and the food we're eating. So when it's boiled into this simple math formula of calories in, calories out, I think that is a huge problem. And I think we need to reconceptualize how we think about weight and health and move away from this simplistic model. Yeah, I was just thinking about that calories in, calories out, because that's what you always hear. That's what I think even when you go to the doctor, that's the first thing the doctor will tell you is it's all about calories. So if it's not only about calories in and calories out, how does, let's just talk about how does exercise play into that? Yeah, that's an important one because that's the second half of the equation, right? So people say, okay, if I overindulge at a a party or if over the holidays, I I ate more than I want to, I'm going to exercise more and try to burn off those calories. And because that's what that formula, eat less, move more implies that, that they're two sides of the equation. The problem is that exercise, the way at least most of us do exercise does not burn that many calories. And by the way, I say this as an avid exerciser like you. I believe movement for everybody is crucial. It is the the closest thing we have to a fountain of youth. I like to say if there were a pill that could do everything exercise could do from reducing your risk of heart disease and cancer to improving your mood and your self-esteem and your sex life and reducing the risk of colds, all the things it can do, we'd all be clamoring for that pill. But what's mm-hmm. ironic is that often the number one reason people look to exercise is to help them lose weight. And that's the one thing it can't do that well, because as I said, it just, the kind of exercise most of us do, do does not burn enough calories. And when we do engage in vigorous activity, we're talking about going, working out every day, burning five, six, 700 calories a day. And that is a lot of exercise at a level that most of us aren't willing or able to do. But if we do mm-hmm. that, That will work in the short term, but over time, what happens is our bodies respond, metabolism slows down, and we burn fewer calories from that exercise. And so we have to keep ratcheting up the amount of exercise we're doing to keep burning the same number of calories so that over time it doesn't work. That said, there are some very important things that exercise can do when it comes to weight. And this is important for people to understand and go in with correct expectations. So even though it's not great at helping you lose weight, it's very important in helping keep weight, to keep weight off that you've lost or to avoid gaining weight in the first place. So movement is very important for that. And you don't have to do the kind of crazy exercises on Biggest Loser mm-hmm. or someplace like that. It's just the kind of basic recommendations that we see for good health. We're talking about five days a week, 30 minutes a day of aerobic activity and a few days a week of strength training. That can be very effective when it comes to keeping weight off. So that's something that's very important when it comes to exercise. Also, exercise can help reduce visceral fat. That's the kind of fat we often hear about that is sometimes you can tell you have it from having a large waist. And that's the kind of fat that's often associated with negative metabolic effects. And so exercise, again, moderate amounts of exercise can help reduce that kind of fat. So there are some important benefits when it comes to exercise and weight. It's just that losing weight is not one of them. So that brings back to the other question of, and I'm joking, mostly joking here, is this time of year, you see all of these social media posts about scolding you. If you eat that Halloween candy, if you eat that extra piece of pie, it's going to cost you a hundred burpees or whatever. 
And, and I think that's just not a healthy way to look at eating during the holidays anyway, but it also just is inaccurate to try to, I think, equate how much you're going to eating that candy bar or that pie and tying it back to how much exercise you have to do to burn it off. I think it's, I agree with you, Kim. And I think it's bad for a couple of reasons. One is, as you say, it's a false equivalency. It's not a correct math equation. But number two, think about what that's saying. It's saying that doing exercise is a form of punishment, saying that exercises is penance that you have to pay for, quote, overindulging. And, And that's not the way, that's the wrong way to view exercise. We need to think of exercise. And this is a gradual process. It certainly was for me. I didn't start off loving exercise as a kid, but as I got older in college and beyond, I learned to appreciate what exercise can do for me. But we need to frame exercise in a different way as something that can enhance your life. It's something you do because it makes you feel better, because it helps you feel empowered, because it can ultimately maybe help you make better food choices, better life choices. But when it's viewed as this is the punishment you have to do because you overindulge, that sends exactly the wrong message about exercise. So for that reason alone, I think it's terrible when we are fed those kinds of messages. So let's talk a little bit about obesity. There's a lot of health risks associated with obesity, but sometimes misguided approaches to weight control often make these problems worse. And that includes sometimes when you go to your doctor or the people in your circle What are some of the issues that arise when doctors, the media, society, just people around us treat overweight people as if they're lazy and not exercising and have no self-control? What kind of issues arise from treating people that way? I think this you raise an incredibly important issue, and it's something I've always been aware of, but I have to say in writing this book, I became much more acutely aware of it after interviewing people for the book and reporting on their stories and, and, and reporting on the exact kinds of experiences you're describing here. So what we often see is that people struggle for decades, sometimes their entire lives trying to lose weight. They, they succeed in the short term, they gain the weight back, perhaps they gain even more, and they go through this yo-yo cycle of, of losing and gaining and regaining. And then what happens is exactly what you suggest. They blame themselves because it's a message that they hear from doctors and from society this is all within your control. And if you don't succeed, it's entirely your fault. And you're, as you say, you're lazy. You're not self-disciplined. The list goes on of these terrible things. And people tend to internalize these messages and start and engage in this self-stigma. They feel shame and self-blame for not having succeeded. And this, and I talk about in the book, the studies that show how the negative effects this has emotionally on people also, and also physically, because people actually end up being less able to live a healthy lifestyle, to do the, to focus on the things aside from weight that are going to help them be healthier, such as what they eat and, and such as their movement and so forth. And so the combination of this st- stigmatization from society and this self-blame result in some very negative health effects, both emotionally and physically for people. So I think this is an incredibly important problem and point, and it's something that we as society need to be much more aware of. And then you think too, you hear all the time about people who maybe are carrying some extra weight who go in and talk to their doctor about an issue that a health issue they're having. And all the medical professional can do is focus on that'll go away if you lose weight. And I I don't remember where I heard the story. I heard the story of some woman who said, I worked hard and I lost all this weight. The doctor's, oh, I'm so proud of you. But my issues were still there. And only then did they start to treat something 
that could have been treated years ago. Do you have thoughts on that? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think the problem is that we too often, including the medical profession, view weight as something that's separate from health, meaning it's all about just simply reduce the number on the scale. That will solve the problem. You need to focus on that. And we know what happens when people do that. They, they, they may or may not have success. They may have success in the short term, but they may not have success in the long term in keeping that number reduced. Meanwhile, as you say, the underlying health issues that need to be addressed often aren't addressed. And so I view weight, and I think people should view weight through a health lens. That is to say, when people assess what weight are you at, think about, is that a healthy weight for you? And if you decide that you, and, and that means looking at other parameters, it means looking at your blood sugar, looking at your mm -hmm. cholesterol, looking at your blood pressure, looking at other, looking at signs of inflammation in your body, other signs like that. And if there are issues with some or all of those markers, then to focus on a healthier lifestyle to be able to address those issues. And so if you lose weight in the process, that's fine. But I think the focus should be on living a healthy lifestyle to be able to address those issues rather than doing whatever it takes to reduce the number on the scale. Because when, when you, there are ways, plenty of ways to reduce the number on the scale that are not going to make you healthier. That's the point of a lot of these diets that I, that I complain about because they're not healthy diets. So they may help you in the short term lose weight, but they're not going to improve uh, your health. And that, again, health needs to be the key here when we're focusing on how to manage this issue. And you can do a lot to lose weight, but maybe you're also losing muscle mass along the way. And that certainly isn't helpful either if you're losing muscle because you're going about it the wrong way. Absolutely. And that's something that you talk about certain diets that intermittent fasting is a good example of this, mm -hmm. where for many people, they swear by intermittent fasting and that's fine. If it works for them, it's great. Again, I'm not here to tell people what they should or should not do. But if you look at some of the research, it shows that intermittent fasting may be more likely to uh, take off muscle mm. than a, a traditional kind of diet. And again, as you say, that's not what you want. This is not about, we talk about weight loss. What we really mean is fat loss because we don't want to lose muscle is important because we need muscle as we get older, particularly. And if we're, if you're really concerned about the best way to lose weight, muscle actually burns more calories than fat does. So you definitely don't want to lose muscle and diets that actually result in greater muscle loss, which as you point out, some do are not in our best interest when it comes to our health. In the book, it's all about the lies that we are told. Where do you fall on BMI? Is BMI a truth or a lie? I would say it falls more in the category of a lie. It's not, a, not completely a lie, but it's certainly a misleading statistic. That's the benchmark that we find everywhere, whether it's doctor's offices, gyms, nutritionists, everybody, or most people seem to use this yardstick for determining who is at the quote, right weight, who needs to lose weight, who's underweight. And the problem with it is just over, overly simplistic. It includes two measurements, height and weight, and it's this one size fits all, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're younger, whether you're older, whatever your race or ethnicity, it applies to everybody. And that's a big problem because we know that human beings come in many shapes and sizes and to have this yardstick, which, by the way, was developed in the 1800s, and it wasn't even meant originally to be a tool for assessing individuals. It was a statistical tool to describe populations. And so it's become, uh -huh. in recent years, and I talk about this in the book, this interesting history, but it's become in recent years this tool to essentially diagnose people. And it's simply, and it studies show that many people who are shown to be obese and at greater risk of health uh, problems really are not because they have more muscle mass, so they're shown to be obese when in fact they don't have a lot of fat. 
Then conversely, people that are deemed to be, quote, normal have, you might say, they're skinny fat. They have internal fat and they are at increased risk metabolically, but it doesn't flag those people as needing to be concerned about health issues. So it goes both ways. And so it's certainly far from a perfect indicator. The reason I think it's, it, we keep using it is there are not a lot of great alternatives. Most of the alternatives for assessing body composition are complex and uh, are complicated and they are expensive and not easily accessible. So there's underwater weighing, there's a DEXA scan. Those things are far more accurate, but they're not easily accessible and, and they can be expensive. One alternative that's often suggested is a weight circumference waist circumference. And what that involves is just putting a tape measure around your waist. And the standard cutoffs put out by the NIH are women should have, or non-pregnant women, no greater than 35 inches and men no greater than 40 inches inch waist. The problem with this, again, is that these cutoffs don't necessarily or shouldn't necessarily apply to every ethnic and racial group. So this may be an imperfect way of assessing health and, and weight as well. However, it probably is better, maybe better, I should say, than BMI. Yeah, this one just gets under my skin. My daughter, when she was about 19 years old, was having to have shoulder surgery. And somewhere throughout the process, she ended up at a cardiologist who wrote in her chart, according to her BMI, that she was, I don't know what label he gave it, obese, overweight, something. And then the physical therapist that she was working with brought this up to brought it to our attention, which I wish she wouldn't have, but there was nothing overweight or large or there's nothing wrong with her body composition. She, she was a teenager. And so I always think there's just something wrong about using BMI as that standard. I, I agree. And I think that certainly we, we want to make, we want to find a way to make people aware if they're at increased risk when it comes to their health, that's important. But there are other yardsticks, as I say, we can look at things like blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar, and so forth. And if this tool is going to not only misdiagnose people, but stigmatize people as well and make them feel that there's something wrong with them or feel shame or to for, force themselves to go on a healthy diet, an unhealthy diet, that's certainly counterproductive. So one might argue that this tool um, has resulted in more harm than good. And I think that there's another thing that's closely tied to this, and that is like society's standards of what beautiful or healthy looks like. And that's changed through the years. And I know you talk about that in the book. Could you elaborate a little bit yeah, on that? Yeah, I, I, I go all the way back to the ancient times when the sort of Rubenesque figures and statues and so forth and paintings was of a, of a woman who was more full figured. And so how it's evolved over the 20th century we had the flapper era and the Gibson girl and all these things that have come along and how over time the female ideal has become thinner and thinner. And even though in recent years, folks on social media and in the fashion industry have said that we want to show plus sizes and be more inclusive, there are other indicators that that really has been a very limited effort. You still see on magazine covers and other places where, and on social media, certainly where thin is the, the ideal. And this has, and I talk about the effect that this has because it really does shape what women, and to some extent men, but mainly women, think that they're supposed to look like. And when they don't look like that, what it does to their self-esteem and how they go through their lives, even though they may be at a healthy weight and an appropriate weight for them, never being satisfied with how they look and always struggling to lose weight and struggling to be as thin as the people they see on social media. And certainly this is particularly a problem for younger women who are exposed to, we know, 
enormous numbers of images on social media and the negative effects this can have on their self-esteem and on their body image and on their perception, again, of how they're supposed to look. And so it's a huge problem and one that I think contributes to a lot of the cacophony and a lot of the misinformation we have because people who are selling us things feed into this perception we have that we're supposed to be thinner. So people say, here, I have just a solution for you. I have the diet. I have the food. I have the program you need to look this way, to look the way you think you're supposed to look based on these images. Yeah. There is a popular running magazine that I have heard does not use real runners on their cover. They use models. And a lot of times they're super, super skinny. And that doesn't represent what the population of runners looks like. Sometimes they don't have enough muscle to actually look like they've been out running. A hardcore runner gets muscles in their calves and in their quads usually. But, and and then a lot of times too, they also, like when they show them fake running, don't even have proper running form. But it's just like another message that you're getting, even from the leaders in an industry go to this magazine to learn how to run. And they're putting people on their cover that aren't really representative of what the running population looks like. Yeah. And and it's a problem. And as I say, there are lots of in the industry, both in the magazine industry, the fitness world, the fashion world who say we're trying to do better, but I think there, there are plenty of examples where they're not doing better and they should be doing better. So we're getting into New Year's and the New Year, New You type of messaging. What are some of the things that we should listen for when we start getting all those gym advertisements and supplement advertisements and just all of the people that want us to buy their gadget or their plan or their whatever to help us be so much better in the new year? What are some of the things that we should use as we analyze those messages? Well, I think first, we should certainly remember that if it sounds too good to be true, it likely is. So when we hear hyperbolic language about you can lose weight fast, you can, you can, we have the secret to losing weight, you can lose weight rapidly, all these things that, you know, should be tip offs to us, that if it's too good to be too good to be true, it likely is. So I think this kind of overstated language, we should certainly be on the lookout for. Also, I think that we often see examples. We're human beings, so we often are swayed by anecdotal information. That's just the way our brains work. So when we see, oh, look at how much weight this lo- how much weight this person lost, the before and after pictures we see on ads or we see on social media. I think that we're naturally drawn to that kind of information, but I think we should try to resist that because number one, it may not be true. Often it's not. These f- images are often airbrushed and faked in other ways. Or there may be outliers or best case scenarios, and they're not representative of most people's experiences. And the same thing when it goes to looking at images on social media, we see these beautiful people, whether they're celebrities or others, and forgetting that A, they're probably airbrushed, B, they likely had a personal chef and a personal trainer and all the rest. And so I think, again, to try to look beyond anecdotal examples that we see to make us think, okay, they're saying this worked for them, or they're saying that these are examples of how people succeeded on a particular diet or particular plan, we should look beyond that. And we should look to evidence, scientific evidence, and to look to studies. Now, obviously, most of us aren't inclined to go look up the studies and read them ourselves. We're not going to do that. But to look to places that can uh, give us information about what the science says. And I talk in the book about a couple of places. One is 
the nutrition, the Harvard Nutrition Source. That's something online. It's put out by the Harvard School of Public Health. They do a good job of laying out the science as we have it about all kinds of nutrition topics and understanding what's the best way to eat. Likewise, the Center for Science and the Public Interest puts out a great newsletter called Nutrition Action. They look at the science as a whole, lay out what's known, what's not known in an honest and objective way, and help you make sense of a lot of these claims when it comes to weight and other issues. So I think that sources like that are very important to look to that really do a good job of making the science understandable for us and laying it out thoroughly to look to that kind of information as opposed to these kind of testimonials we see from ads and from online uh, postings. And then what about just when we're looking at social media, I suppose a lot of the same advice applies, but when we're looking at social media and influencers, and maybe even when you're listening to podcasts like mine, how do you listen to that or look at that information critically so that you're not just going along with the crowd and, oh, my favorite influencer says this is the way it is. So this is how I should exercise or diet. Yeah, it's a hard thing to do. And I don't have any easy answers. I think certainly the best thing to do is to, as I say, to check out some of these sources I talked about that are reliable. I think also it's to, when you see something, one of the things that I know a lot of of us are influenced by is stories we see on the news. A new study shows that Mm, avocados or blueberries or some food will help, is a miracle food, will help you lose weight or do some great thing for you. And I think generally to ask some critical questions when you see headlines like that such as, okay, that, this was a study that was done. How many people were in the study? Did it even involve people or did it involve rats? Sometimes that's the case mm-hmm. and it doesn't really apply to the people. How long were they studied? What did they study? So to ask some critical questions, and if you don't see the answers to those things, just discount that information. And, and I should also add, even if you have one study that's really good, then I think to, to remember that one study alone, even if it's a well-done study, should not determine what we do. It's in, in science, it's what scientists call the totality of the evidence. It's all the studies put together that matter. And so I think that, again, we shouldn't be too swayed by a single headline or a single study. What we should do is to look to some of these organizations I talked about. And if you can find others that are trusted organizations, Mayo Clinic is another, they have good trusted information online. They're going to lay out things honestly and objectively and to, to check whatever, what are claims you're hearing against that. And if you do try something, to go in with realistic expectations. I think one of the problems is people hear about these miraculous weight loss diets, other things, they go in and try it, they, it doesn't work, and then they blame themselves. They say, it worked for all these other people, it works for these celebrities, it's not working for me, there must be something wrong with me. And so I just say to people, if you want to try something and you think it may work for you, fine, try it but also go in managing your expectations and knowing that if it doesn't work, it's not necessarily your fault. It's not your fault. It's the fault is with the method that you've tried. Yeah, I like that. That that was a lot of really helpful information there as far as how to evaluate what's being fed to you. Okay, one more holiday question. So we also indulge more typically in alcohol. What do you say about alcohol? Is it true or false? Is it truth or a lie that we get a beer belly from drinking alcohol? I know many people will be happy to hear this. It is not necessarily true if people drink in moderation means for women up to two drinks a day, one drink a day for women, two for men. I think that many would say that's still too much, but I would say that if people drink occasionally, and I think that's probably the healthiest way to drink and don't engage in binge drinking, then alcohol can be part of a uh, healthy and weight-friendly lifestyle. That said, 
when people start adding, doing mixed drinks and adding sodas and, and sugary beverages to alcohol, that can certainly up the calories and that can have a negative effect. So I think that people should be aware not only of the alcohol itself, but what they're adding in with the alcohol and the kinds of mixed drinks they might have. And, and to remember that those additives, those added elements to alcoholic beverages do have calories. So I think if people can drink in moderation, have some wine, have a drink uh, occasionally, that's perfectly fine. But I, so I think they don't have to worry that's going to give them a beer belly or be particularly a contributive to uh, weight loss or to weight gain. But I do think that people should remember that drinking a lot is not a good thing for your health or your weight. All right. And before we get to how to find the book, is there, are there any final words you want to leave people with or anything I didn't ask you? I would just say that we've talked a lot about what doesn't work, but the thing that I like to emphasize is that there are things that do work when it comes to having a healthy weight. And I think the two things to remember are that we need to have the right expectations. That is to say, to figure out what is a healthy weight for you. And that's not necessarily the weight that you see of somebody on a magazine cover or on social media or what you weighed at your lowest or what you weighed when you were 20. It, it is figuring out what is a healthy weight for you, meaning what is a weight in which your mel- metabolic parameters, blood pressure, cholesterol, so forth are healthy and that you can sustain over time. That's what's a healthy weight for you. And to figure out what that is, it's going to be different for everybody. It may be different at different times in your life, but to figure out what that is for you. And then to achieve that, to eat a health, a kind of healthy diet that's also recommended for good health. That is a diet that's high in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, beans, fish, lean meats, dairy, if you eat dairy, and limits highly refined foods, things like chips, soda, candy, and so forth. Now, it doesn't mean you never eat those foods. It doesn't mean over the holidays you can't enjoy uh, a piece of cake or uh, some soda or whatever it is, but it just means that over time you want to try to minimize these foods and have them as occasional treats. And that kind of eating pattern, as I say, is not only will, will not only result in optimal health, but also has been shown to be good for long-term weight management and staying at a healthy weight for you. So I think if people can keep this in mind, and I talk about some other steps they can take to achieve a healthy weight in the book, but I think the point is there are things you can do, and it's a matter of simplifying it, to get back to the basics and to have the right expectations and the right approach and to tune out all the noise and all the stuff and all the hype around weight loss and get back to the basics so that there is people should, should not be discouraged and should be hopeful that there are ways they can achieve a weight that's healthy for them and that can be sustained over time. This has been really great, really enlightening. Can you tell people how to find the book? Yes, they can go to my website, healthyskeptic.com. And there I have information about uh, my latest book, Supersize Lies, as well as previous books I've written. And I also have created a number of videos, short videos on some of the topics we've talked about today and other topics around nutrition and fitness and wellness. So invite people to go and watch if they're interested. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Thank you for joining me for season four of Power Up Your Performance. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend, rate, review, and follow. Dream big and get out there and explore.